You know, when I was younger, much younger than I am now, I was the less than stellar quarterback for the Pee Wee Vikings. We were bad, really bad. And I wasn't the bright spot. Um, this particular team, we believed in emphasizing the back of quarterback. I was on my back most of the time because my offensive line were like revolving doors or turnstiles. And so I was constantly running for my life. I probably had a higher completion percentage to the other team than I did to my own. Um, I was constantly scared of getting killed, and that was a legitimate fear back then because I was constantly running around trying to find somebody to throw the ball to or, or to just get rid of it, right? But there's a thing that happened that was quite amazing, pretty incredible, really. I figured out that when I handed the ball off to the running back, suddenly my problems became his problems. <laughs> the burden of something going wrong, and there were many things that could go wrong. I could throw an interception, I could fumble, I could get killed. All of those problems became his problems. I just handed the ball off and let him deal with it. And you know, I think there's something to that when it comes to life. I think that's a good strategy when it comes to living this life. So often, we carry a burden that God was ready to bear and meant to bear. I think we need to have a hands-off approach to life. We need to hand the ball off to God instead of hanging on to it and getting tackled over and over again because all too often we shoulder things that were meant for God to bear. This is the fourth installment in our series on spiritual warfare, and hopefully by now you understand the point that I've been trying to make, and that is this is war. This is the fight of our lives, and you can't be neutral here. You can't be Switzerland. You have to fight. You have to choose a side, right? Paul stated it very well in Ephesians chapter 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. God's people that Paul was writing to here were not unlike God's people in the Old Testament. When they entered Canaan, the land of rest, they didn't do a lot of resting, did they? In fact, the first thing that they had to do was gather up an army and go to war. And so they battled at Jericho, they battled at Ai, and then all the other cities around the region that they fought. And I see the same thing with us as Christians. I think it's easy for us to kind of relax or rest. Things are good. Life is good. Church is good. School is good. Work could be better, but it's good overall. Life is good, and so therefore we find it easy to kick back and relax, but there's still a lot more fighting that has to be done. And remember, the enemy is not the atheist. The enemy is not the government. The enemy is not the pagan. The enemy is not human. In the contemporary English version of what I just read in Ephesians 6.12, it reads, We are not fighting against humans. We are fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. Did you catch that? We are not fighting against humans. 
This is not a flesh and blood battle. And as you read through Scripture, you see that there is this ongoing war between God and the forces of evil. And it's a battle between light and darkness. It's a battle between holiness and righteousness versus sin and death. It's a matter of life and death. And sooner or later, every Christian discovers that life is not just a playground. It's a battleground. I grew up in Paragould, Arkansas, and I attended elementary school just down the street from where I lived, Baldwin Elementary. The greatest thing about Baldwin Elementary was its playground. It had this huge, huge playground with all sorts of equipment to keep a kid occupied. That was the best part about school as far as I was concerned. And so I looked forward every day to recess, my favorite subject. But here's the thing about the playground at Baldwin Elementary. It was also a place where people settled their beef. So if two kids had a conflict with one another and were going to duke it out, it was just understood. Meet me at Baldwin Playground. In other words, they would go down there, they would duke it out, everybody would gather around them and watch them fight, and that would settle the conflict. So Baldwin Elementary, as great a playground as it was, would often turn into a battleground. And life is like that, right? It's good. A lot of us live a good life. Most of us have a really good life. But it's not just about recreation. Sometimes it's not so good. Sometimes life becomes a battleground. Sometimes, many times in fact, even though it's enjoyable, we witness that life can beat us up. Satan can beat us up. We've we've witnessed what death does to people, what it does to us. We've witnessed what sin does to people and what it does to us, right? We've seen people that we love be defeated. We've even been defeated. And oftentimes we try to spiritualize it all. In our best efforts to to rationalize it, we say things like, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. You realize that that sentiment is not expressed anywhere in Scripture, right? Nowhere in Scripture do you find that. In fact, what you find in Scripture are many people who felt as though life had given them more than they could handle. Or perhaps that God had given them more than they could handle. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul writes these words. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction which occurred in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. David often cried out to God, asking him why he was bearing certain burdens. David felt that he was dealing with way more than he could handle at times in life. One particular instance, Psalm 38 and 4, he he says, For my guilty deeds have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. Even Jesus, while on the cross, cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God will never give you more than you can handle. Is not only a notion that's not supported in Scripture, it's not supported in real life. Many of us, have felt like that we were dealing with more than we could handle. And oftentimes the proof text for this sentiment is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. There Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind, and God is faithful. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So this is about temptation not tribulation. The basic message is that there is no temptation that can render you powerless. 
Paul is exhorting the Corinthian brethren to be vigilant lest they fall. Just like us, they were immersed in a spiritual battle. And Paul says, don't become the devil's dinner by taking the bait. No matter how great the temptation, there is a way out. God has provided an exit strategy. And the way out, the exit strategy is turning to God. But you know, with temptation, we often have a choice. With tribulation, we often don't. It's often thrust upon us whether we want it or not, right? However, while we may not choose the tribulation, we do have a choice in how we will respond to it, how we will deal with it. And when life deals us more than we can handle, we can rest in the reality that God can handle it. It's not that that God will never give you more than you can handle. The biblical truth is that God is there when you feel like your burdens are more than you can bear. And that's where we see a correlation between handling temptation and handling tribulation. It all comes down to a hands-off approach. Instead of keeping the ball and getting tackled, we hand the ball off to God, who can more than take care of it. You ever seen the movie Cinderella Man? That is based on a true story about boxer James J. Braddock. Braddock was an up-and-coming boxer. He was really good, but he decided that he had lost his passion and his zeal, so he stepped away. He stepped away from boxing. But he got back in the ring when the Great Depression hit, and he needed to make money for his family. And as he re-enters the ring and begins boxing again, he's pretty good. I mean, he's beating guys that are much younger than him, and this stunned a lot of people. The boxing world at large was stunned at how successful he was as he was getting older. And one journalist asked him one time at a press conference, he asked him, he said, what are you fighting for? And James Braddock responded, milk. I'm fighting for milk for my family. Do you know what you're fighting for? Do you have any idea what this fight is about? You know, oftentimes, we want to spiritualize things or, or, or be theologians when really it comes down to just understanding what it means to fight and what we're fighting for. One of the most familiar stories in the Old Testament is David defeating Goliath. It's a classic story of how a little shepherd boy, the underdog, overtakes the nine-foot-tall giant from Gath and, and how so many people were intimidated by Goliath, yet David steps forward and does something about it. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Beginning of verse 1, it reads, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle formation to confront the Philistines. The Philistines were, were standing on the mountain on one side, while Israel was standing on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then a champion came forward from the army encampment of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath. His height was six cubits and a span, and he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze saber slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield carrier walked in front of him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle formation? 
Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man as your representative and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I have defied the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man so that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and very fearful. So the armies of Israel and the Philistines had this implied agreement that they would choose one representative from each side to fight, which meant that one person would take on the burden of fighting for their nation. The outcome of the nation would be decided by one person. Well, the Philistines had no trouble coming up with their representative. They chose Goliath, who was nine feet tall. He had armor weighing 125 pounds. His spear alone weighed 17 pounds, and he was covered in brass. And the Bible tells us that for 40 days, he would come forward morning and evening, shouting his blasphemous defiance of the Lord and challenging any Israelite to take him on. Now, Israel's best troops were terrified. They were dismayed at the daily humiliation that they were forced to endure. The day-in, day-out taunting left them completely hopeless and distraught. So with Israel's battle line quickly moving backwards, they needed hope. And they found it in a little shepherd boy who arrived on the scene and started asking questions. What has King Saul promised to the person who kills the Philistine? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who thinks that he can taunt the armies of the living God? Why can't this reproach be taken away from Israel? David realized that he was his country's only hope, and so he stepped up and accepted the challenge. David says to King Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. But Saul tries to talk him out of it. He says, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David argued that he and Goliath may have been more evenly matched than the king realized. For while in the line of duty as a shepherd, David had killed both a lion and a bear. But more than that, David knew that he was not fighting this battle alone. Verse 37, David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. And we know the rest of the story, right? We know what happens. The menacing Goliath stood on the hill cursing, taunting David all the more because he was young, because he was small in stature, because he had no shield or sword. David stood with five smooth stones and a sling. But more than that, He stood with God on his side. He entered battle with an indefensible weapon, which was a tremendous faith in Jehovah. Listen to what David confidently asserts as he stands face to face with Goliath. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you and remove your head from you. Then I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this entire assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will hand you over to us. 
And of course, David does just that, defeating the giant, gaining victory for his countrymen. And as he chopped off the head of the giant, and as he carried it through town and paraded through town with the head and hand of Goliath, he showed exactly what he believed and exactly what God had done using him as his vessel. It was truly an unprecedented event that this little shepherd boy would stand toe-to-toe with the enormous giant and come out victorious. Several years ago, ESPN.com asked its subscribers to list the top upsets of all time. Number five was Villanova beating Georgetown in the 1985 Basketball National Championship. Number four was Duke beating UNLV. I believe they were previously unbeaten in the 1991 Basketball Championship semifinal. Number three was American wrestler Rulon Gardner beating Russian Alexander Karolin in 2000. Number two was Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson in 1990. Any guesses what the number one upset in sports history was? What do you think, David? Exactly. The miracle on ice. The United States beating the Russians in the 1980 Olympic Games. Now, If slingshot giant killing were a sport, without a doubt, David would be near or at the top, not you, David, but, you know, the David we're talking about, would be at or near the top of the list, right? He would be in the Hall of Fame, no doubt. And I bring up David and Goliath because I think all of us are in a similar situation. We face a giant that taunts us on a daily basis, a giant that causes us giant-sized problems. And the opponent is stronger than us. He is bigger than us. He is more cunning than us. He's more skilled than us. He's, He's better equipped than us. But David's underdog heroics teach us how we can defeat our giant as well. And the first thing that we learn from David is that our problems must always be compared to God. Our problems though giant-sized, are all relative when compared to God. Size is a matter of relationship. It's a matter of perspective. If we believe that we cannot overcome, then we never will, right? If we have this defeatist attitude, we're never going to overcome Satan with a defeatist mentality. That doesn't mean that the power of positive thinking or being an optimist is going to make life smooth and easy. However, the proper mindset is crucial to victory. David's success had nothing to do with his skill with the slingshot. You understand that, right? Had nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing to do with him being a master marksman. Notice again what he says. This day, The Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you and remove your head from you. Then I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this entire assembly may know that the Lord, catch this, does not save by sword or by spear, or we could add slingshot, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will hand you over to us. Now, what's interesting is just before these words, in verses 38 through 40, you read, Then Saul clothed David with his military attire and put a bronze helmet on his head and outfitted him with armor. And David strapped on his sword over his military attire and struggled at walking, for he had not trained with the armor. So David said to Saul, I I cannot go with these because I have not trained with them. And David took them off. 
Then he took his staff in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, that is, in his shepherd's pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. God was David's armor. Goliath was huge. He towered over David. He was immensely strong. Not only that, he was cloaked in a hundred pounds of his own armor, and still it couldn't save him from this little shepherd boy with a slingshot. Why? Why couldn't it save him? Because the battle is the Lord's. That's the key in all of this. The battle belongs to the Lord. This wasn't David's fight. It was much bigger than him. It was much bigger than anything that he had to offer. This had nothing to do with David being a master marksman. It had nothing to do with armor or power or strength. It had nothing to do with the size of the enemy. There was absolutely no chance that David was going to lose that day. The underdog wasn't David. It was Goliath. And Goliath had no shot at winning. It wasn't a fair fight. The thing was over before it ever started. Nobody told Goliath that, but that's the truth. This is not your fight. And you cannot defeat the giant on your own. Giant-sized problems demand a giant-sized solution. Paul stated it well in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, before listing out the various armor that we are to put on. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What are we fighting for? Well, it's simple, right? We're fighting for our soul. And it's a fight that has eternal ramifications. It's a fight that begins with the recognition that you're not strong enough. That you cannot do this on, the, on your own. The moment you think you can, you've already lost. The battle's over before it ever began. This is a fight that began long ago and will continue until God decides to end it. But for now, we fight We fight with the knowledge that the giant has already been toppled. Satan's head is going to be removed eventually. We just got to keep fighting. You know, because the elders expect me to preach on Sunday, there are times when I don't get to watch the Cowboys play. And there are times I'm happy about that. But So I will record the game with the intent of going back later and watching it. Now, what that means is I have to kind of do a dance here at church. There's certain people I can't come in contact with because they're going to give away the ending. And sometimes, and I'm not not complaining, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but there are times when I'm I'm standing there minding my own business, trying to be oblivious and ignorant, which is not hard to do, and somebody will come up to me, man, did you see the Cowboys game and how it ended? And they'll start talking about it, and I'm like, what? I hadn't watched it. I want to go back and watch it when I get home. But sometimes I know the outcome already, and I'll still go home and watch it. I'll watch part of the game, and I'll fast forward through some of it, and I'll see the Cowboys losing, and I'm like, well, how did they win this game? And then I rewind to the end, or fast forward to the end, and I see that we ended up winning the game. And if it's a really good game, which there's not many of those, but if there's a really good game, And a really good ending where we end up winning, I might watch that thing over and over again. And you know what? Every time I watch it, I don't get nervous. I don't get tense. I don't yell at the TV. I don't throw the remote. And do you know why? 
because I know how this thing's going to turn out. I have the knowledge of how it's going to end. So every time I watch it, it's the same. Nothing changes. Victory is assured. See where I'm going with this? I've looked at the back of the Bible, folks. Guess what? We win. That's not a spoiler alert. God has already spoiled it for us. We win. God wins. And because God wins, we win. The ultimate deciding factor is that we are on the side of God, that we fight with Him. Can't do it on your own. But victory is assured. We know how this whole thing turns out. We can replay it over and over again. We can read the back of the Bible over and over again. Nothing changes. However, we do have to admit that although we are victorious in the end, we sometimes feel defeated in the present, don't we? We do. And David's victory over Goliath was short-lived. He went from hero to zero pretty quick, didn't he? Although he slayed the giant, he would be slain by another giant, the giant of sin. David gazed upon a beautiful bathing woman, and that's where he should have ended it. The process of sin starts with temptation. If he had cut it off right then, right there, Nothing else would have happened, but he saw that beautiful Bathsheba bathing, and that's all he saw. He didn't see the heartache. He didn't see the turmoil that would be brought about by his sin. All he saw was her, and he had to have her. And in his efforts to have her, he had to remove any, anyone or anything from the equation that would keep him from having her. And so he arranged for her husband, Uriah, to be killed in battle so that he could have her for himself. No interference from anyone except, of course, from God, the giant slayer was slain by the giant of sin, and we've all been there, I think. We've all been there. Guilty, ashamed, broken, defeated, but believe it or not, even in that state, there can be victory. Even though we're broken, ashamed, even though we're guilty, even though we're defeated, we can still be victorious. Remember that this is not our battle, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that it's against the invisible, which means that if we want to be victorious in the invisible, then you have to address the spiritual, right? Remember the words of David, be gracious to me, God, according to your, love, or your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings, wash me thoroughly from my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my wrongdoings, and my sin is constantly before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Once again, David shows us how to conquer the giant, the giant of sin. The remedy is the same. You address the spiritual, because this isn't a physical war. It may seem like it. You may deal with physical, visible scars, when you fight an invisible enemy. But when you properly address the spiritual, you are victorious in the invisible, even though you feel defeated in the visible. Let me say that again. When you properly address the spiritual, you are victorious in the invisible, even though you may feel defeated in the visible. In other words, you address a spiritual problem by going to God. You address 
the invisible by going through the spiritual. There were uh, two guys that learned that the government was paying $5,000 for every wolf that was killed. Now, these two guys were very skilled at hunting and trapping, and so they decided to go make a living as wolf bounty hunters. I mean, $5,000 per wolf, they, they could do this, no problem. And they became very successful. They made a lot of money killing wolves. But one particular night, they were camping out under the stars, and one of them heard growling. And he sat up and rubbed his eyes and looked around, and there were at least a hundred wolves surrounding him and his friend. They were snarling and drooling, showing their teeth, ready to attack. And the man nudged his buddy and woke him up, and he said, John, we're rich. (laughs) It's all about perspective, isn't it? And so it is with us. It's all about our mentality. It's all about our mindset. What are we fighting for? Who are we fighting against? And understand that victory is already assured. The devil may have you in his crosshairs. He may have you surrounded on all sides. He may have his weapons of mass destruction pointed directly at you. You are destined to be his next victim. But he picked the wrong disciple to mess with, right? Not because you're bigger or better or stronger, but because God is. And because God wins, you win. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for who you are, for your church, for the fact that you have assured us victory. God, may we continue to fight. May we never be sitters. May we be fighters. And may we seek to win at all costs. This is the fight of our lives, God. We realize that. May we always seek to go into battle with you on our side. May we help one another as we rally around each other and encourage one another, help the wounded. And of course, as we leave this place and seek to help others understand the battle and hopefully enlist them in your army. God, thank you for loving us and sending your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you this morning, if we can help you in some way, David's going to lead us in a song. If you need prayer, if you're wounded, if you feel defeated, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism and begin a daily walk with God and enlist in God's army, we've said it week in, week out. There's no good reason to leave here a loser. Help us. Let us help you in this fight. We are all on the same team. Let us go out into battle together. Come as we stand and as we sing.